Hey guys, this is just a quick reminder up top that we are coming to the Sound Education Conference in October in Boston. And if you are interested in coming, you should check out the website soundeducation.fm or go to register for tickets at bit.ly slash sound underscore edu 19. We would really, really love to see you there. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 58, Pope John II. Oh, we're already to John II. They couldn't come up with anything else. All right, I gotta get the book. You gotta get the book. I mean, we gotta get all the way to John 23 at some point, so we're gonna have to hit him sooner or later. Oh, thank God. Past me put a bookmark in it. Excellent. Although I will point out that there was never a John 16 or a John 20 for reasons that we will get to in time. But yeah, we got 21 Johns to do. And now, as is our new custom, as Fry has hinted at by going and getting the book, we are giving our Pope Johns a nickname so that they will be at least slightly more memorable as we go through them. So, using, what is the book again? Ghost of Saltmarsh. Ghosts of Saltmarsh. I know, it was funny, it came up in our uh, Conclave Discord channel today for our Patreon listeners, and uh, you were talking about it with them, and I still couldn't remember the name. So, we are picking pirate nicknames for Pope John, so... Mm-hmm. Please roll me a d20 twice. 20 and 15. Poor devil. <laughs> Oh, that's that is too good. <laughs> okay, so this is Pope John II, aka Poor Devil, which probably would have been a lot more fitting for Pope Blue Hook John the <laughs> First. Yeah, but this is the way that divine intervention rolls, <laughs> literally. So yeah, so let's jump into it. John was born in Rome, and his father's name was Projectus, but his name was not John. No? Did he pick it? He picked it! His <gasps> birth name was Mercurius. Mmm, Mercurius. Yes. And with that name, Mercurius, he entered the church and became a priest, serving at the Basilica of St. Clement on the Caelian Hill, which is considered a very, very wealthy neighborhood in Rome at the time. It's where a lot of emperors would have their royal residences. And yeah, it's, it's just very fancy, as we'll see with future popes coming up. This basilica, to this day, still has several memorials and inscriptions that refer back to this John's papacy, reading things like, Presbyter Mercurius on a Siburum, which is a holy vessel fragment and marble slabs around the place for the choir, which is called the Scola Cantorum, that still bears his monogram that says Johannes surnamed Mercurius inscribed on them. He was fairly significant at this basilica, and I have a picture to show you. Here is his monogram on the Basilica of St. Clement. Well, we can point out the devil tales. There you go. That is where the, um... 
poor devil came from, apparently. He he earned it while he was still Mercurius in the Basilica of San Clement. I do have to say that the sideways four in the H there just 100% reminds me of Sailor Jupiter. Yes, 100%. This whole thing could be the top of the transformation wands for the Sailor Moon characters. It really could. <laughs> Poor Devil Star powered makeup! Ah, oh, I love Sailor Moon. Mm-hmm. I know. You have a comforter. Do you still have that thing? That blanket. Oh, yes. We totally have that blanket that has Sailor Moon on it. From my childhood. Uh, my husband will not let me get rid of it because it's in his nerd cave downstairs, and it's <laughs> where the dogs lay. All right. Well... It's been downgraded quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's still getting aptly loved, so... And it's still shockingly in amazing condition. I don't think there's a single, like, rip or tear or even, like, discoloration on that thing. Yeah, um, my my comforter from when I was small is still kicking. I don't have it, but periodically comes out of my parents' house. I am, like, a perpetually freezing cold person to say the least so like in winter i live in vancouver it doesn't actually get that cold i will acknowledge that we get snow maybe like once or twice a year max most times and i will still sleep under like seven blankets with two pairs of socks on and still be cold so that was just one of my layers for many years but yeah I have upgraded my layers, and therefore it is free for the dogs. But yeah, that's a huge digression into Sailor Moon blankets. Uh-huh. Back to the poor devil. Uh, we don't know exactly what he did to make a very favorable impression on the rest of the clergy, aside from probably being a very able presbyter uh, in a more affluent and influential area of the city. But Mercurius was elected to the papacy on January 2nd of 533 after a brief sede vicante of two months following the death of Boniface II. And the first thing he did when he became pope was to adopt a new name, becoming the first pope in history to take a papal name different from his birth name. We've hit that point. Yeah, first time. And he did this because he felt that his given name, Mercurius was too alike the pagan god Mercury, and that a pope bearing a name in reference to a pagan god was wildly inappropriate. So, instead, he chose to honor Pope John I, Blue Hook, the most recent papal martyr, who was still the focus of much veneration. So, yeah, this is the first pope where we see take on a new name, but this isn't really the point in which this becomes a tradition of taking a papal name. Like, we're going to see popes continue to use their given names or variations of their given names, aside from maybe a handful of exceptions, up until about the year 1000. It's not until Gregory V that we see this become a real traditional convention. When John, now John, now poor devil, assumed the papacy... He was coming into a period where an issue we haven't addressed yet was becoming a major concern. And this is simony. Do you know what simony is? Simony? Simony. Simony. You could say simony, but it's definitely simony. 
It's got something to do with money. It does. It is, by definition, the sale of ecclesiastical roles or benefits. So this includes buying or selling church offices or roles. And as we're going to see later on in history, the selling of pardons. So fun fact, simony is called simony as a reference back to Simon Magnus, the biblical magician that our very first Pope Peter continued to have confrontations with where, you know, Simon attempted to use magic and deception to convince people that he had greater powers than God. We covered a few of Peter's run-ins with Simon Magnus, not only in his episode, which is episode three, but also in Pope Clement's episode, which is episode six, where we go over the story of the Clementine literature. Considering that he was a deceiver and a swindler, Simon Magnus gets immortalized in the name of one of the church's most grave acts of misconduct. And apparently at the time that John became Pope, simony was not only on the rise, it was pretty much everywhere and had gotten particularly bad during that two-month sede vacante period where there was no Pope to crack down on it. When the cat's away, the mice will play, even amongst the most holy of church members, so... During this time, positions, indulgences, and items and sacred vessels from the church were sold in staggering amounts. Like, it was such an issue in the church that John brought before the Senate and the king, who is now King Athalaric, for a full solution, because only a few years prior, under Boniface II, the Senate had issued a decree prohibiting simony in papal elections. This decree is known as the Senatus Consultum Ultimum, which is the final decree of the Senate, because it is literally the last known decree made by the civil Senate body under the Ostrogothic Kingdom. And now, Pope John secured the confirmation of that previously made decree to act as a standing law and put an end to the simony running rampant in the church. And so to make sure that everyone was well aware of this ruling, King Athalaric also had the decree engraved into a marble slab, which would then be installed in the atrium of St. Peter's to confront any and all Roman clerics who entered, reminding them that no church sale funny business was going to happen again. None of that. No. So they literally just blocked it right up in the middle of St. Peter's like, hey, you trying to sell Stop that. Athalaric also added a new provision to the decree, stating that in the event of a disputed papal election due to the sale of offices or any other cause, if the civil authority of the kingdom and the court of Ravenna were brought in to adjudicate, then the church would be fined a sum of 3,000 soldi. And that sum would be paid to the courts for their intervention, and some would be set aside to be given to the poor. So... This is basically saying, if we have to come in and solve this problem again, you're going to pay for it. Clearly, Athalaric wanted the church to sort out their own issues. And we do see this as a theme for him while John is Pope, because any time that a case involving clerics was brought before him or the Roman prefect Cassiodorus, he always refers them back to the Pope. And this is interesting. We don't know if this was in respect of the primacy of the Pope over the whole of the church or the fact that he was just not interested in continuing to deal with church business. But it's still interesting. It does kind of seem like he was sick of the tradition of the kingdom having to step in, 
but he and John were on pretty good terms. So maybe this was a way to kind of politely extricate himself and be like, look, you guys can deal with this. You're the head of the church. It's fine. You handle it. But back to John. Because one of the more famous things that John had to deal with was the Gallic bishop Contumeliosis of Rie, who had caused a major scandal in the Gallic church by committing various crimes of, quote, alienation of church property and adultery. The Gallic church had called a synod specifically to deal with these accusations in 533 in Marseille, led by the Metropolitan Archbishop of Arles, Caesarius. At this synod, Contumeliosis admitted to his wrongdoings, and there, quote, by his own avowal, was convicted and deposed from his bishopric. So, at the conclusion of the synod, Bishop Caesarius wrote to Pope John to inform him of the deposition, like you do. Send the most important matters to the Pope. This is a thing. We're getting into the habit. And John wrote back to Caesarius and the whole of the Gallic Church, confirming their decision and issuing instruction that, due to the nature of Contumeliosis's crimes, the deposed bishop should be confined to a monastery to serve penance. So not only should he be deposed, this dude has done such bad things, let's lock him up and make him do penance hardcore. He also decreed that in the interim, until a new bishop could be elected and recognized by the Pope to fill the vacancy in Rie, the diocese was placed under the direct care of the Metropolitan, the Bishop of Arles, Caesarius, to ensure that there was no disorder or confusion of jurisdictions. So we locked that guy up. And around the same time, Nestorianism popped its head up again, so we're going to enter heresy time. This is heresy time, sort of. What really came up was theopacism. I mean, we've already covered Nestorianism in depth in many, many episodes, culminating with its condemnation with the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and we briefly touched on theopacism in Hormistus' episode when those Scythian monks approached the legates who had come to end the Acacian Schism to argue about their concept of God's suffering in the flesh at the crucifixion was orthodox. When they were blown off by the legates, they had come to Rome and Hormistus had refused to recognize their formula because at the time it was far too monophysitic in its language and Hormistus wanted to reaffirm that the Chalcedonian definition and the Tome of Leo required no amendment. So, in the time since then, the Theopassite monks had won over the new emperor, Justinian, to their way of thinking. So, remember in brief, their way of thinking can be summed up that if you asked a Theopassite, was the crucifixion of Christ a crucifixion of God? And they would say yes, because in their belief, God could suffer. And so, in a conference in Constantinople of 533, the new emperor Justinian had favorably incorporated the Theopassite formula that one of the Trinity was crucified in a definition of faith because he had come to see this flexible theological formula as a phrasing that maybe could help reconcile moderate monophysites to proper orthodoxy and make the Council of Chalcedon even a little bit more palatable for those 
less extreme monophysites. However, there was one group that felt severely threatened by the emperor's embrace of this theology, and these are the Akoamedi, or the sleepless monks, that we discussed briefly in Pope Felix III's episode, episode 50. They're the, the most vehement opponents of Justinian's inclusion of this formula, and so they appeal to the Pope on the grounds that Hormistus had rejected this formula in the past, and thus the Scythian monks and the emperor should be condemned for using it. And at the same time that Pope, poor devil, is getting this, Justinian had also sent the Pope his profession of faith, including this formula, which was called the Redentes Honorum, on June 6th of 533, requesting the approval of the Pope and the condemnation of the Acoamedi if they couldn't be brought to accept it. And in this letter by the emperor, we can see his incredible deference to the Pope, reinforcing declarations of papal primacy by referring to the Pope as head of all the churches and his desire to have his orthodoxy properly confirmed. Therefore, we have exerted ourselves to unite all the priests of the East and subject them to the see of your holiness. For we do not suffer that anything which is moored to your holiness, however clear and unquestionable, pertaining to the state of the churches, should fail to be known to your holiness, as being the head of all the churches. For as we have said before, we are zealous for the increase of the honor and authority of your see in all respects. It's a very nice letter from Justinian. Yeah. At this point, he's a, he's real deferent to the Pope. And having received this letter upon review, John didn't seem to find the Theopassite formula as problematic as the Acoamedi or Hormistus had, and he attempted to have the sleepless monks concede their protest for the sake of unity. But they were having none of that, so Pope John issued an excommunication of the Acoamedi sleepless monks on March 24th, 534, and sent a letter to Justinian to confirm his position. I'm going to give you a couple snippets from John's letter. Okay. Quote, Among the conspicuous reasons for praising your wisdom and gentleness, most Christian of emperors, and one which radiates light as a star, is the fact that through love of the faith, and actuated by zeal for charity, you, learned in all ecclesiastical discipline, have preserved reverence for the see of Rome, and have subjected all things to its authority, and have given it unity. The following precept was communicated to its founder, that is to say the first of the apostles, by the mouth of the Lord, namely, feed my lambs. Feed them. Feed those lambs. This see is indeed the head of all churches, as the rules of the fathers and the decrees of emperors assert, and the words of your most reverend piety testify. We have received with all due respect the evidence of your serenity that you have promulgated an edict addressed to your faithful people as dictated by your love of the faith for the purpose of overthrowing the designs of heretics which is in accordance with the evangelical tenets and which we have confirmed by our authority with the consent of our brethren and fellow bishops for the reason that it is in conformity with the apostolic doctrine. So Justinian receives this letter. And he's thrilled. This is a huge success for the East, and would bring many resistant Monophysites far more easily into the fold of Orthodoxy. 
And as such, the letter from Justinian outlining his definition of faith and John's letter of reply confirming his approval were both incorporated into the Code of Justinian, which is the massive codex of laws and legal codes and rulings to codify Roman law for the first real time since the Codex of Theodosius in 312. So, the Code of Justinian is a massive, massive deal to imperial history, and John's letter gets preserved within it, which is why we have it to quote from. Also, in thanks of John's confirmation of Justinian's definition of faith, the Liber Pontificalis also tells us that Justinian also lavished the Church of Rome with wealths of gifts and valuable goods, which would have basically restocked the churches over what was plundered in all of those simony sales in those two months before he became Pope. So this is, at this point, a win for Pope John. And the final issue that came to light under John's papacy was an issue that, for the most part, had been sorted under the rest of the church, but still remained a problem in North Africa. So, this has been a problem in North Africa since the foundation and fall of the Vandal Kingdom, and then the readmission to the Eastern Empire. And it's a heresy. No, I have, I, my brain is not clicking. I know that it's been there forever. So forever. It's just, I'm not getting the chug to get, get that brain cell working. That single brain cell is not on today. Well, here, here is its jolt to life. Arianism! Ah, <laughs> uh, duh. So, in 535, a council was convened at Carthage, led by Bishop Reparatus, comprised of 217 Carthaginian and Eastern bishops, in an attempt to reach a consensus on the issue of Arian lapsi. That's right, the lapsi debates are back. Oh, like we didn't deal with those already. Yeah, I mean, this time it wasn't about whether the lapsi should be re readmitted to the church or not, but how exactly they should be readmitted. The council wants a firm and clear determination of whether or not the bishops who had lapsed into Arianism during the ongoing persecutions, should be welcomed back into the church with their rank intact, or whether they should be readmitted only as laymen. The final determination of the council was that any lapsi returning to orthodoxy from Arianism would be ineligible to hold holy orders, i.e. would only be readmitted as laymen, and so they wrote to Pope John requesting that he confirm their determination. However, by the time that their letter of decision arrived in Rome, Pope John had died, so it will be up to his successor to give them a final confirmation. So, on that note, Pope John, the poor devil, died on May 8th, 535, of natural causes, and he was buried in St. Peter's Basilica. And of course, his tomb was destroyed in the renovation to New St. Peter's, but his epitaph has been preserved having been created by his successor. Thank you, Wendy Reardon, for always putting these in your books. So, his epitaph says, quote, Living in a godly spirit, brought up in Christ's hall and rejoicing only in simply goodness, you obtained the honor of the papacy by your attractive merits of obedience. You please the people by leading a peaceful, quiet life of pure love, 
and worthy of high respect. With goodness and safety you sheltered a whole flock entrusted to you, and for this reason you held the sacred heights of the Apostolic See as the Supreme Bishop. Aegyptus in the city of Rome rightly venerated your honor by bestowing these pleasing gifts to your tomb. So that's nice. And that's the poor devil. So, let's raid him. Oh, Jesus. All right. <laughs> Papatum infallium. So he confirmed the the confession of faith of Justinian, which included the Theopassite formula. So that encourages the reconciliation with harder-line Monophysites, who haven't yet accepted Chalcedon. He excommunicated the sleepless monks, which makes Theopassism acceptable. Whether that's good or bad is up for debate. Uh, certainly encourages Justinian, and we'll see how that goes, but we can't judge him for that yet. And he put a legal end to simony for the time being. Not forever, of course. But for the time being, he went and stamped that out real good. So, it's worth a couple points. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about the Theopassite formula. I feel like, as Hormistus did, that it's kind of splitting hairs and it's a little too monophysitic to really kind of reinforce that orthodox view. So I don't really want to give him a lot for that. But I will give him a point for ending simony for the time being. For the time being, yes. Let's give him one point. Okay, so he gets two in total. Fructus prohibitum. Yeah, no, there really isn't anything here for that. It is another zero. Seculari impactum. So he secured a very positive and profitable relationship with the Eastern Emperor Justinian. This is going to become massively important very soon. And yeah, because Justinian's going to have a major, major hand to play in the church, if I haven't hinted enough at that already. But yeah. Um, the foreshadowing is all there. It must be so strong. Everybody, because Justinian is like one of the best known Roman emperors, and people have a lot of thoughts about him, and he's generally considered one of the best. But we're definitely going to be taking a different perspective than what's normally looked at for him. So it should be interesting. People will have to come to their own conclusions, how they feel about it, in the purview of the popes. So there's that. John, at least, got to have a very good relationship with him. And that is going to benefit them. That got them a lot of wealth, confirmed a lot of influence. And it means that his letter, his papal letter, was preserved within the Code of Justinian, which is pretty cool. And so, for me, this is a three or a four. Okay. Mm, yeah, okay. If you're going to give him a three or a four, I will give him a flat three. Okay, then I will give him a four. And we'll give him a total of seven in this category. Fossium Sanctus. We're down at the point in our spreadsheets where I have to scroll up to see the title heading for each column. So I have to make sure I'm putting things in the right place. That means we've done a lot of popes. Okay, here is this man's face. You're going to have some feelings about it. Okay. Long man is long. <laughs> this is a long man. He has a very short forehead, and then the rest of him is very, very long. It's not even a short forehead. If you were looking at that man head on, that is a five head for sure, because he's got no hair to back it up. 
Like, look at it. If you turn it slightly in your imagination, that would be a lot of forehead, which goes into a lot of nose, which goes into a lot of mustache, into a lot of beard. Because there is definitely a distinction between mustache and beard here. How much does this old man look like my husband? (laughs) If John... Well, no, we've seen what John looks like with shaved head. (laughs) Oh my god, I did not see it. John is also a long man. If John grew a Fu Manchu mustache and then a beard underneath it? Like a really long beard. It's so long, and so is the Fu Manchu, so... But yeah, otherwise it it is John, isn't it? It really Oh. I knew you were gonna have some feelings, but even I didn't see that. <laughs> How do you wanna rate your husband? <laughs> I don't know anymore. I need to sit out. I have no. I can't rate him. You're pulling an impartiality? Do you wanna just give him a s like a neutral five out of ten? That's rude. <laughs> <laughs> So you're going to give him a zero, and this is all going to be based on my score, which is going to mean it's even lower. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which is more rude. Fair. Okay. Um, this long man. I'm just surprised you don't want to auto 10, because it's like, yep, this looks like John. I don't want them to feel like I have a bias. I guess it's all This entire round is about bias. I'm going to give him... A nine. A nine. Okay. All right. Now the question is, how do I rate it? Because, I mean, I kind of love it just for the, like, even not looking at it like John, it is definitely a long, long man. Yeah, I'm I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give the poor devil, long, long man, a token five just because I don't know. No, you know what? I like it more than that. I'm going to match your nine because he's a long, long man. And that will give him a total of 4.5 in this category. He did very well. I wonder why. (laughs) Yep, yep. Tempest Pontificus. January 2nd, 533 to May 8th of 535. Two years, which is a score of 0.5. That just uh, brought his total score so far to a nice even number all right everybody it's the canon bonus round he is not a saint there is no reason given we're just starting to slide out of token sainthoods which is really really disappointing because i would love to make him patron saint of long long men (laughs) or of the japanese candy and just yeah nope he can't be Wow, we're just, we moved out of the patron sainthood. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. We're getting into the point where there will be less and less patron saints. We're, yeah, we're going to hit a run of of no sainthoods at all in a bit. So that brings us to his total score, which is 14. Oh. Yeah, he, he, he scored a 14. Poor devil. So now I must ask you, is he papally enough? And pizzazzy enough, or look like your husband enough, for a papal bull? No. No, poor devil. No. No, he does not. That's okay. I think that's fitting. So, before we go, we have a Pope Watch. There's a lot of news coming out right now, so um, to start off our Pope Watch, yes, 
the Pope is in Africa. He is doing a tour right now of Africa. To bless the rains down in Africa, I'm going to say that joke every time. And I'm going to ignore that joke every time. (laughs) He's in Africa. Uh, We will cover that in a little bit more detail as we go on, because there is something that happened on that trip that I'd like to cover. But this happened first. On Sunday, September 1st, Pope Francis was late to his weekly Angelus, which is his public prayer and blessing, due to being stuck in a Vatican elevator. Oh, no. No. Is he? He's okay, right? He is okay. And he made it, even though he was a little bit late. He apologized to the crowds for being late by saying, Dear brothers and sisters, good morning. First of all, I have to apologize for being late, but I had an unexpected event. I have been stuck in an elevator for 25 minutes. <laughs> Ridiculous. I'm so excited about it. It's It was just the funniest news story to come out. So, according to Francis, a drop in voltage caused the elevator to stop, leaving the Pope stuck and in need of rescue by firefighters. Pope Francis, do you have an elevator degree? <laughs> well, I mean, this is probably what they told him. And okay. <laughs> the, you know, elevator technicians is, is a very, very good job, well-paid trade. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what to do with your life, elevator mechanic. That's the thing. Seriously, they get paid so much money, it's ridiculous. So, yeah, Francis had to be rescued by the firefighters. It's hilarious. He asked the crowd who was there for his Angelus to give a round of applause to the firefighters for their efforts. It's great. And on the same day, Francis also named 13 new cardinals from all over the world, including Guatemala and the Congo and Indonesia, Cuba, Morocco, and more. And one who was not even a bishop, a Jesuit priest currently living in Canada. So 13 new cardinals coming. They will be received in a formal ceremony on October 5th, which is Francis's sixth consistory for new cardinals during his papacy. I mean, that's more standard Pope watch, but it's not as fun as the Pope getting stuck in an elevator. Yeah, that's a good Pope watch. That made me laugh so hard all day, seeing all of the stories come out about it and how happy he was about it. He's like, oh, thank God for firemen. I love it. So yeah. If you don't know what to do with your life, maybe you become a fireman or an elevator tech. Maybe you'll get to meet the Pope, and I will hate you forever. You are in the same room as him. I know, I got to meet him too, but not for long enough. I would love to rescue Pope Francis from an elevator. Well, you're gonna have to change your career. Well, I mean, there's still time. Anyways, on that note, we have thank yous to make. First, we have some Patreon patrons. Poperinos and some Poprancinis. So we need to thank and absolve of their temporal sins Quasimodo, Chris Jensen, and Chuck Hendricks. Quasimodo? Yep, it, it is Quasimodo, and I was so tempted to try and pull out some very dramatic hellfire moment here. Ugh, but, you know, copyrights are a thing. Yep. You are absolved, and thank you for your support. We will also like to thank, of course, Rex Factor at Totalis Rankium. And we would like to thank all of the people who continue to retweet and recommend us to people. We put out a call for reviews and you guys are delivering and it's making a difference and we really appreciate it. 
If you haven't heard, somehow you have missed the news that we are going to be speaking at Sound Education in October in Boston. You should check that out. They just released the opportunity if you're not interested in, in going to or paying for a whole day at the conference, you can pay and buy a ticket for a single event. So if you want to come see Mike Duncan talk to Robin Pearson and you want to see two weird girls talk about Pope stuff, you can do that. And those are almost back to back. You're going to have to run. I think they're pretty close together. Please don't run. Please don't leave. We won't run over time. You will not miss Mike Duncan and Robin Pearson. I promise. But on that note, thank you so much for listening. And goodbye. Bye. Bye. Long, long.